So we are going to hear a story this morning. And if you've got your Bible, or if you've got a Bible, we're looking at the book of Esther. Um, and it's a two-parter. It's a two-parter. So this is week one. We're going to also be looking at it next week as well. So if you are able to come or listen to the, um, to the tape again, to the digital thing, then um, I'm sure that you will be able to really get into this story. And we're in a series on faith and faith in action. And there's lots of things already this morning that we've heard, that we've sung, that I think link in with um, this story. So I'm going to tell the story as a story. I'm going to tell the story as, the, as a story. I'm going to come even nearer. Um, there was once a very, very mighty, powerful king. And the mighty, powerful king ruled much of the known world. The king actually called himself God King. That's what he wanted to be called. And he ruled um, 127 different regions. And when we think that one of the regions was India, and we think how big that is, and another region was Egypt, that gives you a sense of how big this kingdom of 127 areas was. And this guy was a Persian, and Persia is a region. We still talk about Persian rugs, Persian cats. But it was a big, big region um, that existed. It really existed. Um, and this king ruled in a citadel, and the citadel was called Susa. Um, you'll know of Babylon. You'll be aware of Babylon. Susa was a city pretty similar in size to Babylon, and it's in the middle of modern-day Iran. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. All we often think about are wars and battles in the Middle East. This was the cradle of civilization. This is where life started, many people believe. And this is where this god king called Xerxes lived, ruling his 127 different provinces. And in his third year, as the ruler of this known world, he had a great feast. And this feast lasted for about six months. And during the feast, all the food and all the drink that he wanted was brought by the servants. And the servants were often people from all of the different areas that they'd captured and beaten in battle. And they served this great king. And he served, first of all, for six months, all his royals. And they took all the food and all the drink that they could possibly have. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, how can you just keep on eating and drinking? Well, some of you won't be thinking that. Um, <laughs> How can you keep on it? Well, the Romans had a technique, and the Romans' technique was that they just kept making themselves sick after every meal. So they literally, like um, anorexics, they would literally make themselves sick, and then they would eat again, and then they'd make themselves sick, and they would eat again, and they would just go on and on. And the Romans, we know, and the Persians, and many of these big um, empires would eat more and more bizarre things. They would look for more and more unusual things to eat just because the extravagance was partly linked with them being like a god. And in the last week of the six months, Xerxes decided that he would invite all the people, all the rich, all the poor, anybody at all who lived in Susa, in this city, to come to the feast, just for one week. So they'd had five months and three weeks, and then in the last week he decided, right, anybody in Debden, 
anybody in Loughton, anybody in London, you can now come to our big feast for one week. And you can drink and you can eat whatever you like. You can have water, you can have wine, you can have Diet Coke, 7-Up, whatever you want to drink, it's there on the table. And as he was having his massive feast, which was mainly men, the women were having a feast as well. And Xerxes' queen was called Vashti, and Vashti was having her own party. Obviously, it was a more sedate affair. It was like maybe Pims, Prosecco. You can imagine, a little bit more classy, perhaps, than this lavish man's peacock-like feast. And at the end of the feasting, um, he was pretty drunk, I imagine, and he was probably a little bit spaced out. And he said, bring my queen, I want to show her off. And the Bible says um, that he basically said, put the crown on her and bring her in front of this. Now, remember, this is not just the royals. This is everybody from the city who is partying. And he says, bring my queen. And it's not clear whether what he's saying is, bring my queen just with her crown on or put the crown on um, and she's wearing clothes. We don't know. Most people think she was probably being told, come naked, with the crown on, because I want to show her off. It doesn't really matter what she was told to wear because she refused to come. She said, there is no way you're going to show me off like some possession. But the problem was, in those days and in many empires, right up until recently, queens had to do what the king said. Women had to do what the men said. Wives had to do what the husband said. And if they refused, it became problematic. And so the king got really, really cross. And the king decided he would get his wise men, who were also at the party, and they would decide what to do about Vashti. And the good news for Vashti is they decided not to kill her, skin her alive, not to impale her, not to hang her. They let her live but they banished her. And we don't hear anything else about Vashti after that. She disappears from the story. Now, what we do know, but the Bible doesn't say, is that this was round about 482 BC. And I quite like this period in history because I know what Xerxes went and did after he banished Vashti. You might not know it from the Bible because it doesn't say anything at all. But there's a gap, and the gap is about four years. And what history tells us is that he went to war. And he went from Persia over to Greece, and he tried to conquer Greece to add to his 127 territories. And the Greeks got together. This really happened. We know it happened. And all the Greeks had city-states, and they gathered at a place called Thermopylae, the Hot Gates. So in 480 BC, we know there was a massive, massive battle. And people writing about it said that there was somewhere between about half a million and two million Persian soldiers who pitched up in Greece to try and take over some more because he wasn't satisfied with what he'd got. And we know that he didn't win. So we might know about the 300, about the Spartans, about the battle that stopped him. We then know there was a sea battle as well. But whatever actually went on, we know that what happened was Xerxes went back to his territory, back to Susa, after several years with his head between his tail, or his tail between his legs. Don't know exactly where his head was, 
but he went back to Susa. Now, when he got there after this, he needed to have his arrogance, his confidence mended. And obviously, one of the things he could have done was he could have gone to his wife, but his wife had gone because he'd got rid of her. And so he spoke to these wise men and he said, right, what is the best way that we can kind of satisfy myself? How are we going to make me feel good again? And what he did was he decided and his, his rulers and his kings and his leaders decided they would come up with a Miss World competition. That's what they basically came up with. It was a Persian-style Miss World competition, and what he decided was he would send all his administrators, they'd have their Wednesday morning staff meeting, and he'd say to everyone, we're not going to pray for 90% of the time, what I'm going to get you to do is go out and find the most beautiful women in the Persian Empire. Now remember, it's got 127 different places, it's really big. Off they go, and they find the most beautiful women in the empire. And then they spend a year getting all of these women to look as beautiful as possible. A year of makeup, a year of eating all the right foods, a year of hair being done the right way. You know, I'm way up my depth. But a year getting ready. And then they have one night to go to the King Xerxes, and Xerxes makes his choice about who is the most beautiful, comely, amazing woman in the whole of his empire. And at that point, our hero, Esther, enters. Esther is a Persian name. So many of you know that when the Jews went into captivity, when anybody went into captivity to the Babylonians, to the Persians, they would give them a different name. It was partly a tactic so that they forgot their past. But Esther is the Persian name. And Esther, Estrella in Spanish, means star. So Esther is the star of the story. And Esther is an orphan girl. Her mum and dad have died. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us. Um, and she had an uncle who she'd lived with for a long time who treated her as though she was his daughter. So she's taken to Xerxes for her year of getting ready and then her single night to try and convince him she's the one. And she is the one. Everybody who comes across her thinks she's wonderful. The Bible says that she looked good, says her body looked good. It, she looked lovely and she was beautiful. But Esther had a secret because like her uncle and many of those in captivity in Susa and in the Persian Empire, she comes from somewhere else. Esther is a Jew. And her uncle has said to her, don't mention it. There are lots of people who hate the Jews. There are lots of people in power in this area who don't like the Jews. Don't mention it. So she hasn't told anyone. She hasn't told anyone at all that she's Jewish. But one of the people who hates Esther is called Haman. And we know that Haman has a history and his people have a history. And if you read into it, you can go right back at the start of the Bible, back to Abraham, back to the people of um, Israel and why this guy, Haman, who was an Agagite, and the Agagites hated the Jews. And you can see in the Bible why that happened. But all we need to know is that Haman was basically the prime minister. And the prime minister came from a race that hated the Jews. And Mordecai is the name of Esther's uncle. So Mordecai, Esther's uncle, has gone with Esther for this year 
and he's gone to try and see whether she's going to become the queen. But he's not allowed in the palace, so he sits just outside, and he spends a lot of time sitting outside. And when Mordecai is sitting outside, he basically hears a couple of leaders from Persia, and they are plotting to kill Xerxes the king. Mordecai is not allowed in, but he tells one of the guards. The guards tell Xerxes there is a plot. Xerxes stops the plot. Xerxes kills the two people who are plotting, and Xerxes forgets about it. As we know from the story of Joseph, leaders in that time were really good at forgetting things. And so we've there got Mordecai sat at the gate. We've got Haman who becomes prime minister. And one night, Xerxes can't sleep. And he thinks to himself, bring me something really interesting to read. And so his people bring him the history of the Persian Empire. It's a big bit. It's a big, big read. It's probably got several volumes. It's been handwritten, of course, at that time. And in it, somebody says, there's a story about Mordecai who foiled a plot to kill you. And he goes, wow, that's amazing. So he says to Haman, who hates Mordecai, come here, let me talk to you. What would you do if you were me, if you were the king, and you had somebody you really wanted to honour, and you really wanted to bless them? And so Haman says, well, do you know what, king? Because he's beginning to think this is me, isn't it? Because he's a bit cocky. I would get them to go out on the king's own horse and to be taken all through the city with somebody really important in front of them going, this is what the king does for those who honour him. So Xerxes says, that's a great idea. I really like that, Haman. Now, you go, get a horse, and do that for Mordecai. So Haman, who hates Mordecai, has to lead him around the entire city, saying, this is what the king does for those people who bless him. And Haman gets very, very cross. And he goes home, he's married, he's got lots of his own advisors, and he says, right, we need to get this, this guy Mordecai. What are we going to do? Because I hate him, I hate what he's doing. And he basically thinks, do you know what? I think I can catch him on the thing that we can always catch the Jews on. They will not bow down and worship anyone other than the true living God. So Haman goes over to Xerxes and he basically says, right, there's a group of people in your region and they refuse to bow down to you. They refuse to recognize you as the man God. Now, we know that Xerxes was a little bit volatile. There are stories about him doing really crazy things on the battlefield. We won't go into those. But what we do know is that when Xerxes hear that, hears that nobody bows down to him, he decides, right, we're going to issue a decree then, Haman. And that decree is basically going to say, if you will not bow down, if you're Jewish, then anybody else in the empire can kill you. So this decree goes out. The decree goes out that basically says, if you are Jewish, you can be killed by anybody else on a certain day. And Haman says, well, it doesn't really matter what the day is. He gets his dice, because they make decisions by casting lots or throwing dice, called pure. We'll come back to that. He throws his pure, and it comes up with a date. Let's say the 13th of the 12th month. So the royal decree says on the 13th of the 12th month, you, if you live in the empire, can go and kill the Jews. Now, at this point, Mordecai's got a serious issue. He's still there outside the gate. He's sat there, and he does what Jews do when they are mourning. He dresses himself in 
sackcloth. He puts sack on. He puts ashes all over him. He goes into a cold fire. He gets all of the ashes. He spreads them all over that. And then he sends a message to Esther. So Esther's in the palace. It's a royal palace. She's in a great position. And what Mordecai says to Esther is probably one of the most interesting and significant and often quoted bits of the Old Testament. Because he basically says, don't think that you in your palace are going to be safe from this decree, even though nobody knows you're Jewish. Because God will do something to save the Jewish people. And it might just be that he's put you in this place for such a time as this. And as Katie was saying a bit earlier this morning, Esther was very much the right person in the right place at the right time. And the question is, will she do the right thing? Will she sit there in her luxury with all the food and the drink and the power and the servants that she's ever wanted, an orphan girl, or will she risk everything by going to the king? Now, she decides she's going to tell her uncle to fast and to pray for her and to get everybody she knows to pray for her. And they pray in the fast, and then she goes out to see the king. Now, she's not allowed into the king's presence without him inviting her, so she's got an immediate problem. In theory, if you pitch up and try and walk in and see the king without him inviting you, you should just be killed. Nobody goes into the holiest place, says Xerxes, the god king. But she decides this is too important, and she says to Mordecai, if I perish, if I die, I die. I'm going. I'm going to do it. So after the three days of prayer and fasting, she goes in, and Xerxes extends this royal scepter, like this long kind of thing that you've probably seen. Our own queen has one of these scepters. And the scepter basically means, I'm touching you with the scepter. You are okay to come and to talk to me. So she goes and she invites him and Haman to a feast. And at the first feast, they enjoy it. Haman even goes home after the first feast. He says, this is amazing. Look at what I am. I'm now prime minister. Even the queen, the most beautiful woman in the world, keeps inviting me to feast. I've got another one tomorrow night. And then the, the, the next night doesn't go quite so well. Because at the second feast, Esther says, King Xerxes, Haman, just sit there for a sec. King Xerxes, there is somebody who's issued a decree that means that me and all my people are going to be destroyed. And Xerxes go, no way, no way on earth is this going to happen. Tell me who it is. And she says, it's Haman. Now, Haman is not very happy. Xerxes gets even more cross. He goes smashing through the temple and he walks out. Haman gets on his knees and he begs Esther. He gets right down on his knees. He starts grabbing at her dress. Please, please, Esther, don't, don't, don't. Xerxes is going to kill me and my family is going to blow me. Da, da, da. And then Xerxes comes back in, and it doesn't look very good for Haman. He's on the floor. He's trying to rip at Esther's dress. And at that point, Xerxes is told, Haman has been creating, we're not sure whether it was a gallows or a big spike. We think it was probably a big spike, because although we talk about hanging, most of the Persians actually put people on spikes to kill them. But he'd created a big spike to kill Mordecai. And Xerxes says, get him take him and put him on the big spike that he'd got for Mordecai. Do it right now. 
So Haman is hauled out of the palace, out of the feast, and he's killed. And now we reach this section where we know the Jews have this decree out there. And Xerxes says, but it's my decree. It's got my seal on it. What can I do? How can I do anything to try and solve this situation? And Mordecai says, okay, here's a plan. Tell the Jews that they can arm themselves. They can protect themselves. And tell them, in fact, not only can they protect themselves, but they can actually preempt the strike. So let's say it was on the 13th day of the 12th month. On the 12th day of the 12th month, the Jews can actually go out and they can fight back. They can preempt. Now, we're not going to gloss over this. This is not a particularly attractive way of God solving it. What happens is Xerxes creates another decree, another act, and all of the Jews get arms, they get weapons, they go out the day before, and then they actually start killing all of the Persians who were armed and ready to kill them. So it's a bloodbath. And at the end of this bloodbath, Xerxes says, because of what you've done, Mordecai, because of all the things you've shown me, you're going to be prime minister, you're taking over from Haman, and Mordecai and Esther, for the Jewish people, want to remember this great event, this great salvation, when the Jewish nation would have been wiped out. Because just so that we're clear, there is no Jewish nation. There's not a big Jewish nation back in Israel at this time. Most of them have been hoarded off into captivity. So in order to remember this, they come up with a plan. They will call it Purim, and they will create their own feast or festival. And that is where we need to know a little bit more about the background to this story. So this is the story. It's in the Bible. It's Esther. It's bang, bang in the middle of the Old Testament, really. And I just want to give you a little bit of background, first of all, on this. So the first thing to remember is this is one heck of a mighty empire here. And Xerxes definitely existed. We're not so clear about Esther and Mordecai or even Haman. They're not mentioned anywhere else in history. People have tried to do it. They've tried to come up with, oh, well, they definitely existed. It was this period. But we know it must have happened in the nine years or so between 482 BC and 473 BC. There's a genuine period where we know Xerxes ruled. And we know he was rash. And we know that he did have big, big parties. We think this was probably written in about the 2nd century BC. And we think it was written because during that time, there was another really serious thing that's not written about in the Bible, um, where it looked like the Greeks, under a king called Antiochus IV Epiphanes, decided that he was going to wipe out the Jews. So it's around about 167 BC. And most people think that under this persecution in the 2nd century BC, the Jews decided that they needed to remember this story of Esther. And the reason they did that is because in the middle of all of this, they wanted to show, as the Jews have done time and time again, and the Christians have done time and time again, that however difficult the circumstances you're facing, however however oppressive the enemy is, however strong the enemy seems to be, God will not abandon his people. God will not abandon you. 
Whatever you face, however difficult, however big the demons feel, however it seems like it is impossible, you're the orphan girl with no hope and no future in a foreign land, or you're the queen where there's been a royal decree and you can't even go into the king without giving away an identity that will get you killed, or if it's you in your situation here today, God has a plan, God puts plans in place, and God is in the business of salvation. And during Purim, which is the festival that the Jews have, they still have the festival. It usually starts on a Wednesday night, goes on till about Friday morning. They start by reading the book of Esther. And they read the book of Esther at the start of it, and they then just pause and they recollect the great salvation of God. And then on the next day, they read the book again. And they sit down and they go, seriously, that is one impressive story. And then they give money to at least two poor people. And then they send gifts of two kinds of food to at least one person. And then they have a massive banquet with wine and they're allowed to get drunk. That's Purim. Now, one of the interesting things about Esther is that the, there is no mention of God in the whole book. God is not mentioned. Prayers mentioned, fastings mentioned, the Jews are mentioned, but there is no mention of God. But just like Moses at the Passover when he's in Egypt, at the Red Sea when he sees a massive ocean and there's no way through, just like Joshua when he's at Jericho, this massive ancient old city that he looks at the walls, the oldest walls in civilization apparently at Jericho, he says, how the heck are we going to smash that down? And just like Daniel, when he's in the lion's den looking at this massive lion thinking, how on earth are we going to survive this? And just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, when they're seeing this fiery furnace that is so fiery that the gods that are taking them are all destroyed, this is a story where God intervenes in the most difficult of situations. So we don't know whether this is a story or fact. It's only written about in the Bible. We know that the king existed. We don't know whether Esther existed. But what we do know is that the Jews and the Christians treat this story as a way of reminding ourselves about our God. It's a little bit like we don't really know whether there was a prodigal son or not. We think there probably wasn't a prodigal son. It was a parable that Jesus told. But what he was doing was telling this story to say, this is the nature of my father, God. It doesn't matter whether there was a real prodigal son or not. It doesn't matter whether there was a real father or not. It's just a shadow, an imperfect image. It's just us seeing just a bit, a fraction of what God is like. So treat Esther like that. We can analyse it, we can explore it, and we will. But we're also thinking about the nature of a God who at just the right time, using the most impossible things, shows what happens when people put faith in action. Now, when Rich first introduced this series, which was back in January, um, he talked about some key points that were in Hebrews 11. 
So if you haven't looked at it recently, Hebrews 11 is that chapter that goes through faith and what faith is and people of faith from the Old Testament. And Esther's not in this chapter. But what Rich said was this. He said, faith is about being sure of what we hope for even though we haven't seen the end result yet. We're commended for faith and faith pleases God. When you step out in faith, you're pleasing God. Faith is about realizing that we are strangers and foreigners on earth and we've got a heavenly home where we're going, which has been prepared for us. Faith is about understanding the past, how the world was made, what God has been doing in human history. It's about looking to the future and our eternal home in the future and it's about living in the present. We act now because we know what God has done, we know what God is preparing, and we therefore know that we are safe to put our faith in him now. Faith is about doing or acting or, or actually getting out there and doing something. And as we heard the word this morning, it's not good enough just to have a faith. It's not good enough just to sort of sit there on our own and think, actually, we're okay, just like Esther wasn't allowed to do that. Our faith is there so that we can put it in action. We have a faith so that we can get out there and make a difference. And it says in Hebrews that faith does not guarantee success on earth. Now, for Esther and for Mordecai and for many of those other Old Testament characters, it did. Things went really well. But it's about the eternal home and the eternal destiny that Hebrews 11 comments. So if we think really quickly about Esther, and we just talk about Esther and what Esther really did, and what the story tells us, we can see it really fits that pattern brilliantly. So first of all, both Esther and Mordecai are sure of what they hope for. They believe in the complete salvation of God. They genuinely feel, Mordecai says, that God will find a way to solve this. Their confidence is the same kind of confidence when you pray for somebody and you say, no, no, God will find a way. Amen. It's the confidence that says, whatever happens here, we are going to trust that God has a solution. God solves problems. He's a saviour. He's in the business of saving. Secondly, Esther and Mordecai are rewarded and commended for their faith. So in an earthly sense, one becomes queen, one becomes prime minister. That's pretty big. One has a book of the Bible named after them, and both of them are embedded in a Jewish festival. That's pretty big way of being honoured and remembered for your faith. I'm not suggesting any of us are going to become king or queen or prime minister or have books of the Bible named after us. That's very unusual. But it's an example of where they trusted God and he rewarded them for it. Thirdly, they're both foreigners and strangers. They didn't physically live in Israel. They were born in captivity, but they knew they were born in a land that wasn't their own. So they were very, very much, quite literally, in a foreign capital as strangers. But they knew, they really, really knew, they had a people they had a purpose, they had a destiny, and that their God was more important than their current living situation. 
Next, if faith helps us to understand the past, look to the future, and live in the present, Esther is brilliant. Both of them knew about the past. They both knew because the Jews in exile constantly talked about what God had done in the past, constantly reminded them about what God had done in the past. And I just want to give this now. I just think for all of us, we need to do more of that stuff. We need to do more remembering what God has done in the past, in the Bible and in our lives. We need to remember those words that he gave for us years ago, and they came true. We need to remember those dreams that he gave us when we were younger. We need to remember when we were in that back room and people were praying and somebody had something for us and we forgot about it. We need to remember what those things were. Because remembering who God is and what he's specifically saying for us is really significant. They lived in the present and they coped with this dangerous situation in the present because they were rock solid in who they were and in what was coming for them. And that comes back to the point we've already said, which is they acted. If Esther hadn't gone into the king, Mordecai couldn't have got there. God may have had some other way of solving this because he may well have plan B's. But Esther being in the palace as a Jew, accessibly going in, was the plan. Mordecai couldn't do it. He couldn't get beyond the gates. He wasn't allowed to. He wasn't holy enough in Xerxes' eyes. So faith is about acting in the confidence that God has good things for us. And then finally, faith is about saying, whatever happens to us, whatever happens to us, we're going to trust God. It's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say when they're going into... They say, we know, we know God can save us. We, we are seeing over a 1,000 degree temperature in there, and people are burning up in front of our eyes. But we believe God can do this for us. And even if he doesn't, well, do you know what? We've got eternity to live with him. So we need that bigger vision of eternity, that bigger vision of what God's got for us when we're there with him in the future, that revelation of what the future's about so that we can not bow down to the idols and the God kings and the rulers of today. And we've got to remember in Hebrews, it does say, verse 6, chapter 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we've got to keep reminding ourselves that he exists, that it's not some game, that we don't come to some service because it's nicely ordered and we've got all the right things, but that this is real. That God is real and that he is really there for those who earnestly seek him. And that's why we've decided to put in Esther for two weeks and why next week what we're going to look at is this. Next week we're going to look at Esther as a woman of beauty, power, action and humility. A real star. We're going to look at Mordecai as a man of God, of humility, of boldness, and a mentor. We're going to look at God's timing. 
We're going to look at living in a complex pagan world. We're going to look at remembering. And we're going to look at respecting our elders. That's the plan for next week. Let's just pray for a second, shall we? Lord, we remember, we remember your goodness. We remember what you've done. We remember all those stories in the Bible. We remember the things that happened. We remember the things that are given as examples for you as a good God who chose to send his own son to die for us so that we might have an eternal home with you. Thank you that you want to walk with us. You want to talk with us. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to be those sparkling gems in your crown. You want to put us in exactly the right place to do the right thing in the right way. Lord, help us with confidence. Help us to, to increase our faith. Help us to do those things, Lord, that you've called us to do. Lord, where we're muddied, where our thinking's muddied, where we just can't seem to see you, I pray you'd lift that fog. Where there's a lack of clarity, Lord, we can't see a pinpoint way forward. Help us know that you're right there beside us and in front of us and behind us, protecting us and, and providing the way. Lord, where there are people that we, we just don't know how to relate to, we don't know what our relationship should be like with them. We, we're in situations with our, with our families, with our friends, with people at work that we just don't know how to relate. We can't see the way. Lord, provide the way. Provide the way. Lord, for those people that we want to share you with, provide the way. Help us to have the right words, the right actions to share you and your goodness with others.